0: Another thing is sustainability. If you have mass transportation in an autonomous capacity, you don't need to own a car, right? Electric vacation, electric vehicles will merge with autonomous technology. So then emissions will be reduced. And then also when you think of autonomous trucking, that would also simplify the supply chain that we're very so much dependent on right now. And there's so much trouble within the value chain there. So Hopefully, it'll make the world a better place eventually, not today, but five to 10 years on the road.
1: Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular lightbulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you are hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Fascinated by transportation, mobility, and self driving technology. On this show, we've already talked about cars, motorcycles, bicycles, planes, rockets, even tractors. This week, we dive into autonomous trucking, which promises to disrupt multiple industries and even the global supply chain. Our guest is Paula Bejarano, Director of Business Development for Navistar, a global company recently acquired by Swedish trucking giant Scania. Pala wasn't always in trucking. In fact, this aerospace engineer turned mechanical engineer turned business executive is now in her third career. Palla has worked on the space shuttle at the European Space Agency, on oil drilling rigs at Shell, and on charging systems for the Tesla Model 3. She's also the author of the book Autonomosity, Autonomous Vehicles and Emerging Business Models. Now she's merging her engineering and business sense in her leadership role at Navistar a global company that makes trucks, buses, and engines, where she's leading the way to a driverless future. Paola's stand up performance in the business world goes back to her roots as an insatiably curious only child growing up with her single mom, far from Silicon Valley, in Bogota, Colombia.
0: I was born in the capital. Bogota, it's quite high up. It's about 3,000 meters above sea level. And I was an only child. My mom brought me up by herself. So she was a single mother. As a single parent, that's a big job by itself. But what did your mother do? She has a job that I don't think exists today. She was an overseas operator for the national phone company. So rather than you going through Skype and dialing somebody's telephone number or their screen name, she would connect you if you're here in the U.S., Donna would be called this operator and the operator would connect to the operator in Colombia and then they will pass through the call. It was only like 1990s. It wasn't a long time ago, but it feels like a century, right? Technology-wise.
1: So only child growing up in Columbia, what was your passions and your curiosities? I think I was more in like exploring on my own. I was very independent.
0: on a single child. So I love Legos. I love taking things apart, like a clock or a radio or having those sets where you build things, right, with electric wiring. And now my mom was really big into encyclopedias. Back in the day, people come and sell you encyclopedia at their doorstep. And my favorite is the space, the planets, Saturn, Jupiter, the universe, the galaxies. So I was really into that. And from school, I just really liked geography, geology. I was really interested in technology and innovation and this deep learning curve, just this absorbing knowledge. And I've always had the freedom to try new things. It was never like, oh, trucks are for boys, right? So don't play with that or don't play with Legos. So I think that combined with the exposure to all these encyclopedias and scientific principles, I think led me to a career in innovation and technology. So you moved to the United States
1: in high school. What was that experience, that transition like?
0: It was a small town. It was called Bethel, Connecticut, a tiny, I don't even know how many people, probably 40,000, 30,000 citizens or people of inhabitants. And uh, they didn't have ESL, English as a second language. I was probably one out of three Latin Americans that lived there. And I think subconsciously, I was trying to lose that Latin heritage in order to become more American. So it got to a point when I was in college where I had lost a lot of my Spanish, which was crazy. You know, it was like I always spoke English because I wanted my accent to disappear. I want to look more American. And I think that happens today with a lot of second generation kids where they may be ashamed or they just want to fit in. So I think at those first probably five years that I spent in the U.S., it was that transition and trying to identify who was I, my identity. And once I got to college, it was different because I moved to Florida more Latin American people. I was older, I was more mature. So I regained that Latin identity again. But it was a process,
1: you know, to become who I am today. Yeah. I mean, the classic teenager rebellion, right? And I've seen it oftentimes that the first generation child does rebel, want to be, like you said, more inclusion and assimilate. But in that period of time, obviously you were thriving in math. What ignited you to want to study engineering?
0: I was like, what can I study at school as we're going to be really hard? <laughs> and then I also wanted to be an astronaut when I was young. You know, I think we all dream of being an astronaut at one point or another. Actually not having those classical parental roles where there's a mom and a dad and the mom it's supposed to take care of the house and the dad is supposed to go to work, right? And be the engineer. Not having those differentiations, I think it completely erased from my mind that fear that, oh my gosh, I'm going to be the only girl there, right? When I came into school, it was like, oh yeah, it seems like I'm the only girl, but it was never the fear of encountering people that didn't look like me. And I think at that level, there's not so much of that differentiation between female and male. At least I was oblivious to it or was feeling like at class, my opinion wasn't heard because I was a girl. My personality has always been very opinionated and I've always liked to speak in class. I think that's also seen my mother raise me on her own, right? She had to provide for us, right? She had to speak up. She had to figure out how to get a mortgage for the house, right? So I think seeing that, taking that initiative, it helped me to just be that person that speaks up and stands up and raises her hand. And I take being a female as an advantage because people would always remember you if you're the only the one in the room. And I did. I leveraged that. I was like the one girl out of 30 people in my rocket propulsion class, right? So if I go to the professor, if I did study groups, people would always know who I am. And I think that's not a bad thing, really, because then it helps you. It helps you with your voice. It helps you build a community, build a network. And I think that that's worked out well
1: throughout my life, to be honest. So when you're in college and you come out the other end with your degree, what was your first job? So when I was in Florida, they have a co-op
0: program. So I was working at NASA, Kennedy Space Center.
1: Which is crazy because that's like, oh,
0: my God, I want to work in space one day. And then I got it and I'm like, wow, you can really get what you want <laughs> if you work at it. So uh, I was driving back and forth from UCF. It was about an hour and I was going to reliability engineering for the shuttle, the space shuttle. So I would crawl into the space shuttle to do inspection of systems. It was just so cool. I couldn't believe I was there. I met a bunch of astronauts. I watch a bunch of lunches. I would do inspections on the tanks. I don't know if you've ever seen the big orange tanks. So it was kind of living the dream. I was like, oh my God, this is what I wanted to do. My first job as I was finished school, they asked me to stay. They offered me a job. And at that point, I was like, well, I was homesick. I wanted to go back to the Northeast. And I also wanted to keep studying. Actually, (laughs) funny enough. So I worked there and then I got a fellowship at Northeastern up in Boston doing research. And that was when I got my master's in mechanical engineering.
1: And then how did you ultimately end up at the European Space Agency?
0: I wanted to live overseas. I had plenty of friends in Europe and I really enjoyed after moving to America. I really wanted to have that experience again. So then right after I graduated, six months later, I moved to Europe. I was doing research in satellite design. I couldn't go straight to the European Space Agency because I just hire EU citizens for the way it's structured. So I was working via a research company and I ended up in Delft, Netherlands, which is about an hour south of Amsterdam. And I was in the European Space Agency for a couple of years. And in the Netherlands, I was about almost eight
1: years. And what kind of projects were you working on with the space agency?
0: So I I did a lot of 3D modeling, designing of assemblies or mechanical systems that would go on a satellite for European Space Agency. So one of our projects was to create this optical assembly that would measure atmospheric pollution levels for a specific satellite for ASA. Another project that I worked on was really cool. It was this other assembly that was made of this very innovative material that would measure the distance between the stars. It was called LISA. I think it was a LISA Pathfinder. And it was finally launched 10 years later after I left. So it was really cool. It was a joint venture between NASA and ASA. And it was all about launching this telescope that will tell you what was the distance between galaxies beyond the Milky Way, for instance. So I was same part of doing testing of the components i do design of them as well and also validation verification for flight testing But after working at the European Space Agency, I realized that it was very research-oriented and the work that I was doing, it was going to be launched in five to 10 years. So I didn't really see how my job was impacting an overall goal. So I decided to go commercial and I joined Shell, which I really enjoyed. I met tons of people from all over the world. I was working drilling rigs. Again, I was one of the few women out there. It was really interesting.
1: Was that your first exposure to transportation? Because you've been in aerospace and now you're moving into transportation?
0: Correct. Yeah. So that was the first time that I worked on energy. I never thought I'd go into that kind of field. After a while, I started to question the alignment of my values and my mission career-wise with what I was doing. I was an engineer working in oil and gas. So in terms of sustainability, long-term impact to the world, to the planet, I had a bit of an epiphany, like maybe I need to do something that aligns better with my values. So then I decided to come back to the U.S. to do something more innovative Not necessarily had to do with automotive. I wasn't sure. And I chose to go back to school, go to business school, learn how a company makes money, how a product is realized, how customers are acquired. So I applied for the program at Georgetown. They have a very international curriculum. They're in Washington, D.C. So it was closer to my family in New York. And it just seemed like a really interesting opportunity.
1: So now you've gone full circle from Columbia to United States to Europe. And then back to the United States at this point, did you realize the influence that you would have and your superpowers, your independence, as well as your language, and then now putting them into this next career?
0: I feel like I was new. Like I was just this person who's just picking up automotive. So I worked with a professor for my university in Georgetown. And I started interviewing people in the industry. I started to come up with different theses around the technology. But it's always been a really like, I have to hustle. I have to really get out there. And I'm not a software engineer by background. So I don't code at all. And when it comes to autonomous technology, that's huge. You should be able to understand those concepts because it's all product-based. And if you're Silicon Valley, your software skills become more important than your hardware skills, to be honest, as a mechanical engineer. So I saw that as a disadvantage. And then I was going into business. So I was abandoning my engineering career, right? My my engineering skills, but I saw it as an opportunity to have an unfair advantage where I could combine both business and technical. And that's how I got into business development. And halfway in my business school experience, we were supposed to do a summer internship, and I had no clue what I wanted to do. And I applied to Tesla and I was like, probably not going to get it, but let's just apply. I actually got an offer to go to Fremont for four months in California. So I got there and there was all these robots working on these cars and there was this robot arm that picked up a car like it was nothing. And just like seeing that the whole automation and manufacturing and then sitting in the car while it parks by itself and it does all things that are the autopilot, right? So like a very advanced, Level two, we call it, if you talk about the automation levels from zero to four or five. I think that was my first exposure. And I was in love with the innovation, the technology, the mission-driven nature of the company. I think overall, it just opened the doors and opened my mind to new opportunities. And that's where I decided to write the book on autonomous
1: technology. So you're writing the book while working at Tesla? I did it on my second year of MBA. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. So while you're at Tesla... Did you feel that Tesla was the gold standard for autonomous cars? I didn't
0: really understand much of autonomous technology. When I was at Tesla, I was working more on the manufacturing side, building the machine that builds the machine. So I couldn't tell you at the time if Tesla is the gold standard. Now I can say that there's different school of thoughts, right? Uh, Tesla is moving towards perhaps not a lighter approach while others use lighter. So I would say they're one of the few companies that were first and they've collected a lot of data, which gives them an advantage. Besides, they don't have an autonomous vehicle today. They have a very advanced level two, which is ADAS, which you probably have in your car as well. I think eventually they'll build a self-driving vehicle, but that's not the whole purpose at this point. I think they're trying to build more electric cars to bring down the price of them. So that will be a secondary offering to the customer, but not the main
1: purpose of the company. Engineers typically design for the most common scenarios. However, when programming for self-driving vehicles, the most problematic and most publicized errors are the edge cases. In other words, all the things that can go wrong on the road that you never expected. And as every human driver knows, edge cases are everywhere. Failing to engineer for these scenarios means accidents, deaths, liability, and regulatory setbacks. And failure is simply not an option. Here, we dive into what that means for autonomous technology. So, what do you think the promise of autonomous driving is? And why is it taking us so long to either adopt or to adapt to it?
0: I think the industry still has to prove themselves. It's a hard problem. The computer in the car has to replace a human being, they have to replace the brain of a human being when it's driving. And every situation you encounter when you're driving might look like something else you've encountered before, but it's actually completely different. So, trying to train a computer. To just react to every single situation out there, we call them edge cases, It's difficult. It's funny because it says like 99% of the driving of the vehicle can be trained to do, but that is that 1% when you encounter fog, when you encounter people crossing the street, when you don't expect it. So that 1% is really what is
1: taking so long to develop. I've been that 1%. I almost got hit crossing the street in front of the Apple building in Palo Alto. Oh, wow. And some man leaped out in front of me and put his arms in front of me just because the car was not stopping. It was a Google car.
0: <laughs> exactly. I may not recognize that you're a human. I think that's one thing. The other thing is that the government regulation-wise were not ready. So if you think back of the airline industry in the 1920s, we have all these planes, but only risk takers were flying and people doing crazy loops in the air. And there was no regulation, no safety standards. And it was until the industry advocated for regulations from the government that the public started to accept aviation as a means of transportation. So if you think about it, it's the same. It's just adopt the mental barrier of change. We're always resistance to change. That's obvious. And then the next thing is the government saying, okay, we're going to regulate this. The safety of the verification procedures, proven, validated. So that will take some time as well, because regulators perhaps don't understand the technology. And I think also it's expensive. A car with all those sensors is about $250,000. That's a prototype, right? So if you want to mass produce it, you have to bring a lot of that cost down for lighters, for cameras, for computing power, So we're moving along, I think. We're progressing, but it will take a while. And also the business models around it. Because in trucking, for instance, you start to wonder how all the different partners are going to work together. There's no driver there. So what kind of fee you're going to incur to your customer. So all those things need to be figured out. They don't have to be perfect at the beginning, but you need to have a baseline and work from that. And I think the ultimate goal of autonomous Transportation is to democratize transportation for everybody, make it accessible in remote areas, low income areas, make it agnostic to gender, race. It's a computer. So if I go into a specific area, San Francisco, that an Uber driver doesn't want to go to, I won't be able to get a ride, right? But if a computer goes into that area, it doesn't care. It's a computer. I think eventually that would be one of the major goals. Another thing is sustainability. If you have mass transportation in an autonomous capacity, you don't need to own a car, right? Then electrification, electric vehicles will merge with autonomous technology. So then emissions will be reduced. And then also when you think of autonomous trucking, that would also simplify the supply chain that we're very so much dependent on right now. And there's so much trouble within the value chain there. So Hopefully it'll make the world a better place eventually, not today, but five to 10 years on the road.
1: Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like brothers Anoop and Kamal Chung, who are transforming the tire service industry, and Neville Boston, whose smart digital license plates are disrupting the DMV and connecting roadways and cities. It's something that needed to be changed and fixed. It hadn't been changed in over a hundred years. It was a technology that needed to be integrated and we were forced and
0: hampered and shackled to a metal plate when everything else on the car, including the tires and the windshield, are smart.
1: I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. You mentioned a couple of scenarios that make total sense within cities and lower economic areas and trucking. We already see autonomous tractors. I've seen autonomous big rigs, and there's even talks about autonomous planes. So what do you think the best use case applications are? Do you think that we'll see autonomous school buses? As a parent, that kind of makes me a little nervous. But if you look at the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to have like a super hyperloop metropolis that's full of autonomous cars and trucks.
0: I think because I'm working on a truck company right now. So I think for sure, trucking is going to be the first use case that's going to be fully autonomous. And I believe that because it's the less complex problem a truck drives straight down a highway so there's no pedestrians there's no lights there's no dogs running across it's going to be the easiest also the market is huge it's like 800 million dollars taking into account like e-commerce and all this next day delivery demand by the market so all our goods are being moved around the US right through rail to ground ship whatever so i think that that's going to be the first use case i don't discount things like the school buses i think any kind of mass transportation, it makes sense to automate. If you think about airplanes, so you probably feel comfortable putting your child on an airplane. And I say 60% or more of the operations in a plane are done by a computer, right? Maybe not landing or taking off, that's a pilot. But then once you go on the air, it's all autopilot and people don't even think about it, right? You just kind of like say, okay, you know, I trust this because it's been around long enough and regulation is there and companies maintain those vehicles. So I think eventually we'll get to that.
1: Do you have any fears about autonomous transportation? I fear
0: that perhaps we get ahead of ourselves and there's more accidents. So like you say, a lady in Tempe, Arizona, probably five years ago, she was crossing the street in the middle of the night and this autonomous vehicle didn't see her or it was a false positive, if you want to use the industry terms. And she died and that caused so much stares within the industry. People started to say, oh, maybe this is not ready. Maybe this is not good for society. And it was really in fact that Within the culture of that company, there were so many red flags and so many warnings had been raised, but nobody really listened. That's my fear, that we might recklessly launch something and accidents happen, and then that is counterproductive to the industry. I think that's probably my biggest fear. Or people that use Teslas and fall asleep on the wheel, or they read the newspaper. It's not meant for that. It's not an autonomous car.
1: I've been with those people.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, in one hand, you have to put it out there in order to validate it and to make people comfortable with the technology. On the other hand, people are going to misuse it. And that happens with everything.
1: Who is responsible for the incidents? Is it the owner or is it the car manufacturers? Or when something is autonomous and it's perhaps used in a public versus private domain, who's responsible?
0: That's a great question, and that's a liability question, right? And I think insurance companies are wondering that, tier ones, which are the sensor providers are wondering that, the OEMs, uh, fleets, if we talk about cargo. It's a topic that is not defined at this point, just because we're not fully commercialized, right? We're not at that point. At this point, the technology companies or whomever is doing the testing would be responsible, but there could be a case to be made that responsibility lies
1: farther upstream. Paula wrote the book Autonomosity, Autonomous Vehicles and Emerging Business Models in 2019 to explore technology, competition, monetization, and policy in the autonomous driving industry. This led directly to her next role in the trucking industry.
0: It's autonomous.
1: It's
0: the combination of curiosity we're autonomous. And it was like, again, an epiphany. I didn't have to think about it that much. It had a nice ring to it. So I chose
1: it as a title. You just got to break it down, but it brings the best from your childhood to where you are now at Navistar, right? Your curiosity in the autonomous world coming together, but you wrote it in 2019 and it's 2022. Is there another chapter that you would add to that book?
0: Yeah, I think definitely my book focuses more on uh, ride sharing middle miles, so class one to class four vehicles, and it doesn't touch on trucking at all. So then I think there's like a whole different book that you do. And then the data aspect, because in my book, I do touch upon data handling data transferring, data connectivity, but data monetization, there's so much to it that keeps coming up and it's not super defined today either. So I think that would be a really good chapter to complement the
1: book. I know this is important to describe very specifically what you're doing now and what ultimately you think you're going to be doing next.
0: Yeah, so I'm a director of business development for autonomous vehicles for the programs that are being developed internally for Navistar. So what that entails is that I do all the strategic alignment of the different functions internally for the company. If you think about what do we need to build an autonomous truck, an autonomous ecosystem, you have engineering, you have after sales, service, warranty, I don't know, marketing, so that's one part of my job. And the other part is working with our external partners. We have companies that develop self-driving software. So how do we work with them together? And then also Navistar is part of a bigger group. We're part of Scania and Trayton, which is a global organization. So how do we make sure that our roadmap in the U.S. aligns globally, right? And I'm talking about like five to 10 years down the road. So it's really interesting because... This is all new. Nobody has done this before, right? And we don't know what's going to happen in five years. So it's really cool to be able to have that kind of power to just set a whole strategy for the company. It's very scary because you're probably fit at least 50% wrong, right? Inaccurate how things will be five to 10 years on the road. And also, the, how do you change an organization that's so used to manufacturing vehicles, safe, reliable for the last 100 years, into the unknown, the complete uncertain unknown? You're not innovating a process anymore. You're not Henry Ford trying to get everything perfect and, you know, Japanese principles are just in time. It's all product development. It brings like a whole different skill set that you don't have at the company, you know. So it's all those different challenges I have to work with day to day. It's exciting, but it's definitely not boring.
1: <laughs> well, and the transportation trucking industry is massive, so I personally hope that the autonomous technology is applied in some of the applications that you described and meaningful places that allow us to reduce our carbon footprint to be more sustainable. And instead of having, you know, one person in a four person passenger car all the time, certain things and duties and routine things that can be done, whether it be the postman or food supply chain, can be done, you know, much more consciousness. So if you're going to, create the metropolis of the future? Is it an autonomous metropolis?
0: Some aspects. Yeah, definitely. Transportation will be autonomous. If we think about it, At least in the Bay Area, you spend a couple of hours going from San Jose to San Francisco or going farther up north. If you take that time that you spend driving, it's something productive, working or spending with your family or resting, whatever. I think there's so much to it to leverage from that time that you spend in a car because you want to get from A to B. It's not that you're dying to drive that car, right? Definitely feel like the future is autonomous but it's also integrated within an ecosystem of electrification. So my autonomous car is is sustainable, it's emissions-free, and then also if you bring in hydrogen, that's another automotive innovation that's coming up as well. Development of autonomous technology will lead to other developments in peripheral industries, right, for like medical purposes or space exploration. It always bleeds to other industries, which is what I really love. And then, like I said, it democratizes society in terms of transportation, social status, economical status. And then it makes us also much more connected as a community. There's a couple of these Future cities that are being developing countries like Qatar, Dubai, they're trying to integrate all that as well. And the Hyperloop concept also. It's also providing data on the vehicle, on the people in the car. I think that's another one. So it's
1: connected. Who owns that data that's being collected? Is it my data or is it the data from the vehicle or transportation platform?
0: There's some discussion right now who owns data, the data generator, right? Like whomever's generating that data. Is it the stakeholder that's running a specific operation? Is it the stakeholder that's enabling the operation by providing technology? So it's difficult to define all these really fine lines. So you think about today, if you drive a car, you're supposed to own that data as a consumer, right? And the OEMs, by default, they have access to that data. And they're very overzealous to share that data with telecommunications companies or, I don't know, retail companies that want to know about you. But they are, in some cases, at telematics, the third party needs access to that data in order to feed back to the consumer, in order to flag, oh, there's an accident in this road or You're passing XYZ location that you want to know about. So it's kind of like a circle. It also depends on the context and also functionally. There's got to be frameworks in place that entities agree upon in order to have a benefit. Everybody should be benefiting from the data. And then there's the next level. It's like, okay, we monetize the data. Who should get that revenue, right? That revenue should be allocated to what party based on that data utilization and ownership. And cybersecurity as well comes to play, obviously. So it's very complicated. It's another problem we're going to have to figure out in autonomous technology. And that hopefully will help other industries as well. So you have
1: worked in energy and aerospace and transportation What do you think the next generation of people that want to pursue a career in autonomous, what skill set in terms of acumen, as well as not just the academics, what do you think that the career really needs to bring to the table?
0: I would say from personal experience, for me, I work in very traditional companies at the very early stages of my career. NASA, Shell. So it didn't provide me with that design thinking ability. And then I didn't get to know what I do- I didn't know till I came to Silicon Valley working for a SaaS startup, developing software. And it was all about creating new business models, creating the new concepts. So an element of creativity is super important and having that iteration to fail fast, what they call it. So Lean Startup, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, it's all about testing experiments and that's how you test the market, that's how you test technology, that's how you... Tune into the customer that's going to really buy your product or understand what is their pain point and their need and validate all those assumptions. And that comes with an element of entrepreneurship that you're not really taught at school. So I think that element of initiative, of being creative, I think is super important for people today because as big companies move into this era of connectivity, autonomous AI, computing, all these new things, they don't have the right skills in-house, right? And they're going to have to get people that could quickly ingest information and then start theorizing or make hypotheses of what those new business models, new strategy, new go-to-market methodologies will be. And it's also important to be a well-rounded individual i'm a generalist which some may argue that that's a bad thing or a good thing but you should have people that are well averse in software engineer they're aware of the new technology trends that are out there they should be really customer focused like understand voice of the customer i think that's super important if you're launching a product nowadays and then also within traditional companies that desire to innovate, even though it goes against all your hundred years of intuition, doing things the same way. And today working at a truck company, you see that, you see there's some resistance to change, but I think it's normal, obviously, because they've done things a certain way. They have safety procedures, they have design procedures. So how do you change that mindset in order to be able to stay relevant, innovate, and be
1: competitive in the market? STEM education is like the new liberal arts when you apply the humanities and it's called STEAM. How do you mentor the next generation? And how do you get more women to want to explore and do the career that you've had? That's a good question. I'm always
0: thinking that how do I get more female entrepreneurs, right? So I tried to be a role model to other people. I tried to see myself as somebody that other people can look up to. Like, oh, there's women in the autonomous industry, right? There's women in engineering. I think we should try to break down those stereotypical roles from early on in childhood, like girls don't have to play with Barbies, boys don't have to play with cars, and just instill that level of curiosity and questioning. Just question why things are the way they are. Why is the sky blue? Why do planes fly, right? So just that questioning from the very beginning and exposing people to knowledge. I think knowledge is power. Back in the day before the internet existed, right, it was only for select a few that knew that you have a scholarships to go to university, right, or you can explore different fields. You can write books and self-publish if you wanted to. So exposing people to knowledge and giving them that connection to mentors that have accomplished things, I think is super important. And one last thing, I think the little moving to a new country, learning the language, the little achievements build that confidence. So I wonder how we can have that for little girls where they can accomplish a small science project, right? It's a competition or whatever, a scholarship. And that gives confidence that you can do
1: more and be more. We were so struck by Palo's fearlessness and in pushing into male-dominated fields that we looked up some statistics. In aerospace engineering, women make up only 7% of the field. In the energy sector, only about 22%. In automotive, it's just a minuscule 11%. Self-driving trucks, the industry is so new, numbers don't exist yet. With role models like Pala, let's hope this changes. Thank you for listening follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with StudioPod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.